Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jamie Brickhouse. I didn't know the term in those days, but I had just been cock-blocked by my father. <laughs> that and more. But before that, did you know that the book that we just put out, the Risk book, is available also in ebook or audiobook form? The audiobook is such a joy to listen to. I have to listen to audio <laughs> more or less 24-7 nowadays. And when I listened to the book, I was so thrilled to see, ah, I, never, my, my attention never wanders. It is so compelling all the way through. We have three wonderful voiceover actors. Well, one of them is me. <laughs> so, of course, they're wonderful. Let me play a few clips from the audiobook. The first one, this is Sarah Malo Christensen, who is reading the story from the book by Kitty Haley, the story called It's All Happening at the Zoo. And at the top of his 53-year-old lungs, he yelled, No! Everybody jumped back. The teacher looked at us bewildered. But John was elated. No, John said. He's not hurting him. They're fucking. Miss Thompson's eyes shot daggers at us, as if to ask why I couldn't control this perverse man. And here's a clip of me doing the voiceover narration for the story in the book called Man Up by Max. This guy was a lot bigger than me, though. So when he gets his bearings, he lunges at me. But he doesn't realize I was a street fighter growing up. I know how to fight. I had no problem. So we were beating the shit out of each other. 
and everybody started jumping on us, trying to break us up, but the leader waved them off saying, no, let them fight. Finally, here's a clip from Robin Miles. She is reading the story in the book called The Power by Tori. I felt like God. I had the power to give life. I had the power to take it. I had the power to love, and I had the power to hate. And I knew in that moment, and for the first time that year, that this man was never going to fuck with me again. There's the 37 stories rewritten from the way you originally heard them on the podcast, six of which have never been heard on the podcast at all, plus the introduction and all the Q&As after every story. Go get the Risk book, whether you get it in paperback, audiobook, or ebook form, wherever books are sold, and don't forget to leave a review on Amazon. Also, these days you can get practically everything you want on demand, like this podcast, for example. You can listen to Risk whenever is convenient for you. So why are you still taking trips to the post office in order to mail letters and packages? You can get your postage on demand with Stamps.com. Listen, we've been doing this for the past seven or so years, and we absolutely love it. With Stamps.com, you can access all of the amazing services of the post office, but right from your own desk, 24-7, whenever it's convenient for you. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, using your own computer and printer, and then the mail carrier picks it up. You just click, print, mail, you're done. It couldn't be easier. Like I said, at both risk and the Story Studio. We have been using Stamps.com for so long now that it's just second nature. It seems like a no-brainer to be mailing this way because it's so much more convenient than all those trips to the post office. And right now, you can use Risk for this special offer. It includes up to $55 free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Damn Scray behind me now. And oh, my sweet holy Christ, we are finally done with the Risk book tour. I, I have never been busier in my life. I really haven't. It was 13 shows and five book signings at at bookstores in less than eight weeks oh my god well now listen we'll still be selling the books at shows and uh, we'll still even do some more book signings and stuff like that but 
the bulk of the tour is behind us now. I'll tell you, I've been getting these books about habit forming, positive habit forming, and time scheduling because, you know, during the past eight weeks, I have not been able to eat right, exercise, meditate, or write, you know, these essential self-care things to keep on living. And we're now at this strange place where we're looking at keeping this podcast running and we're realizing that we're not making enough off of advertising we're not making enough off of patreon we're spread more and more thin and we've hired too many people and and we're now actually thinking that we might have to do a risk tv show in order to pay for keeping the audio podcast running I don't, <laughs> I don't, all right, so, so anyway, I'm, I'm looking at ways that I can continue getting sleep and eating right and exercising and meditating while I guess being as busy as I have been for the past eight weeks on a regular basis, because, uh, we're just unsure what, what, what to do next to keep this, this, this entity that that grows harder and harder to produce but doesn't gain money <laughs> so i don't know um you know i mean people are always saying to us what are you talking about you know such and such a uh podcast gets a hundred thousand dollars per month off of their patreon and it's like yeah i guess some people value joking around about pop culture <laughs> a little bit more than what we're doing we thought that the book would be the project to take us to the next place but only four percent of the number of people downloading the podcast have have gotten the book so far so I will say that if you care about what we do, definitely, definitely get over to Patreon because there is a, a ton, there is a ton of bonus content over there. There's bonus stories every week. There's interviews with various people behind the scenes. Sometimes I just do these check-ins where I, um, you know, just kind of do an online journal of whatever's going on behind the scenes. There's lots of wonderful bonus content at our Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash risk and become more involved in keeping this running. And if you are a patron of ours at Patreon, oh my God, we love you so much. We are so, so grateful. But if it does come to a time where you feel like you can afford to contribute even more to up the amount that you're contributing on Patreon, my goodness, we'd be so grateful for that too. You know, I know that a lot of people think that we have a similar amount of resources as some shows that might sound similar to us in certain ways. Some people think that we have the same amount of resources as the Moth, or This American Life, or Snap Judgment. We don't have like one fiftieth of the resources of any of those shows. We don't belong to a massive media corporation, you know, that that has a presence 
you know, throughout the whole nation. No, we're we're a very independent little outfit here. So please, we need as much help as we possibly can get from our fans. Please go to patreon.com slash risk and do whatever you can. We're calling this week's episode live from Minneapolis 3. What a fantastic night this was at Brave New Workshop in Minneapolis. Now, there was a fourth story told on that night that we'll feature on another episode. But in a little bit, we're going to hear from Lydia Reese, who was a first-time storyteller and absolutely, like, so young... (laughs) I couldn't believe how young some of our storytellers were this time around. It's incredibly inspiring to see how many younger people are fans of the show and are able to like jump in and and share on the show as well. But before all that, we're going to hear from Lila Yang. Uh, Lila, another person, never told a story before at a storytelling show. And you're going to hear how she just totally knocked it out of the park. Here's Lila now with a story we call Cat Lady Interrupted. So I love my apartment. It's this small 12-unit building and I live there with my two cats, Mercedes and Bruce, and it's just perfect. It's super charming, cozy, it's comfortable. It's the place I call home. So a few months ago, I was working from home, which I normally don't do, but I had a meeting in the afternoon, so this worked out conveniently, and I'm just sitting there, you know, I'm actually one of those people, when you say you're working at home, I am working at home. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sitting there at my computer, just typing away, hanging out, and out of nowhere, I'm just startled out of my workflow when I get this, like, thunderous knocking on the door. And this voice behind it is screaming, this is the police, we have a search warrant, open up. So I, you know, I take my cats off my lap, who are curled up with me, and I... I get up and I start making moves towards the door and I should let you know, like I'm the kind of person when a telemarketer is calling, like I will pick up, like I I will answer it. So as I'm making moves towards this door, I just like time slows down for a minute and I'm just thinking like, how do I know this is the police? I don't have a peephole. Like what if this is some weird prank and before I can form a rationale for what is actually happening, there's more pounding on my door. This is the police open up and like it's something like there was no hiding from this this was something I couldn't escape so I put my hand on the lock and I just I take a really big deep inhale not knowing how long I'm going to be holding that breath for and then I put my other hand on the doorknob and I just think like all right this is happening and nothing could have prepared me for what came next so what greeted me behind the door were eight plainclothes officers. They had their armored vests on and their shotguns and they were just ready to roll. I'm yanked into my narrow hallway and my heart is racing. And what I see out there is it's just packed with this raiding squad. I mean, it smelled like testosterone and like sweat out there. And it seemed like straight out of a movie. Like I did not know what to do. 
So they put my hands behind my back and cuff me, and they tell me I am not under arrest, but I'm being detained, and my heart is just like in my throat. I can't comprehend anything that's going on. You know, they ask me a bunch of questions like, is there anyone else there? Like, what are we going to find? Are there any weapons? And all I can muster is this like very blunt answer is like, no, it's just me, no weapons. It's just me and the cats. So next thing I know, these large and in charge officers, and they're like at least three times my size, just start stomping into my apartment. And they, they bring me in, they re-handcuff me in the front, and they sit me on the couch. And I'm just frozen in disbelief. Like, what is going to happen next? And I feel so alone, because it's really just me against them. And well, the cats are there, but they're not going to help me in any way. <laughs> so... Seated next to me, they put one of the officers, I would call him the Punisher. I mean, he was just like angry face, pure muscle, like his biceps were bulging out of his shirt. And I, I asked them, I'm like, okay, so can I see the search warrant? And he is like, um, he like awkwardly stumbles with his words, like, um, like I, we, we have one, but the case manager has it. So like, you'll see it later. And I'm like, okay, like, I'm, I'm not going to fight this. Um, so right away, they confiscate my phone. They also tell me that, like, I better give them the password or else they're going to get the search warrant to extend to it. And if I don't give it to them, I'm going to be noted as being difficult. So that's great. So I give it to them right away, obviously. And they just start going through my apartment. And one of the first things they see, like, right on the floor is this blue bag. It's like, pretty bar large and it's got, it looks like sand in it. And they're like, what is this? And I'm like, well, it's cat litter. It's like a 15 pound bag. Like if you're familiar with a litter genie, it's sort of like a diaper genie. And I was gonna, you know, be a responsible cat owner and bring it out when I left later today. And after that, this awkward silence and tension just sets in as they start going through everything else. And I mean, it is like exactly what you think it would be. It's Posters taken off the wall, frames checked, like everything looked through, alcohol bottles opened and smelled, lotion bottles turned upside down. It felt so violating. You name it, they checked it. And then there's this like awkward chit chat, like, oh, we see your yoga running schedule and all this stuff, because I'm pretty healthy. And I'm like, yeah, like, that's me, like, nothing to hide here. <laughs> and so I'm like, sitting there and all you have is time to think like what could they possibly be here for you know did I run a red light recently like <laughs> I don't know like your brain just starts like it starts rolling and as these officers are making their way from my living room to my kitchen I'm like all right it dawns on me I've got some weed gummies in the freezer <laughs> <laughs> it's like I start to sweat and make this realization like I'm connecting the dots I'm like they're going to find them. Pretty sure it's a felony. I'm going to lose my job and I'm going to go to jail. And like in that moment, I realized like, oh man, like these handcuffs, like they are heavy and they are cold and it like sets in. I'm screwed and I begin to panic. So my next thought is, you know what? I'm just going to pretend they don't exist. Like there's nothing I can do about it. I'm just going to pretend they don't exist. And that's it. Even though I feel so incredibly sick. So after a while, it's been like a long, painful 30 minutes, and I turn to this punisher. I'm like, okay, well, I'm just sitting here. Do you think I could see that search warrant now? And 
another question I have is, you know, like, I had this meeting at 2 p.m. Do you think I'm going to make it? Because it's like <laughs> the one concrete thing in the near future I can think about that's like, yeah, like, that's going to happen, right? Like, it's going to be all right. So this officer turns to me and he like, he's like, yeah, I think we might be done by then. And he does finally get up to go get the search warrant and he, he comes back and gives it to me, which I'm like oddly thankful for. I don't know. So I have this document in my hand. I'm looking at it and I'm like, yes, this says they can legally be here. And I quickly scan it and there are three things I note. They're looking for illegal substances. It has my correct address and my apartment number. But my name isn't listed on it anywhere. So I ask, is this for me, or is this for my apartment, or for both? And this officer, he says, it's for both. The case manager will explain when he talks to you later. So I'm just like, this is messed up. Like, I finally have this document that says they can be here, and it doesn't say it's for me. So like, on top of my panic, I'm a little bit pissed. <laughs> and by this time, though, the officers, they are heading into the kitchen. And it feels like a shark circling in jaws. Like, I don't know what to do. So in addition to you know, running and trying to live a healthy lifestyle, I cook a lot. And I cooked so much this past winter that like, I'd freeze a bunch of stuff and gotten to the point where like, the fridge is full. I have to jigsaw puzzle containers into the freezer and then like, quickly close it so it doesn't come <laughs> out. But that meant like, I knew when they were going to open this. Like, it was going to be a clear indicator of when they had made it there. And my heart is in my throat and I'm just like, my gut is just in knots and like sure enough two minutes later I hear this commotion and crash from the kitchen and this oh shit as everything comes tumbling out <laughs> and so like I knew they made it there and I can see like part of it out of the corner of my eye that this is happening and they do find this container of gummies and they you know pull out their kit to test it and I just think to myself like if they're coming after me for these they're coming after everyone in this city. Like, every, they're, they're rounding up people for small offenses, and everyone is going to be fucked. So, they, uh, they, you know, they do this test, and I can see it happening in front of me, and these gummies test purple, which I guess means positive, and with a few strokes of a pen, they haven't noted that I'm in possession of illegal substances, and I just think, like, there's going to be my life before this and my life after this. And we had definitely entered the stage of after. So this assault on my apartment continues. And I'm still just like glued to the couch then. And they're making their way to my bedroom. And as they're taking out every box and dresser drawer and like turning it upside down, throwing it on the floor, it just feels, it just like compounds how deflated I feel. And on top of being mentally and emotionally exhausted, I'm like cringing as with embarrassment as like I know when they're making it to my underwear drawer and like there's not just underwear in there, there's like other related things, if you know what I mean. And I'm just like, man, this is like the cherry on top of this. This is great. <laughs> so finally, after what seems like hours of waiting and sitting and holding my breath, these two officers escort me into the bedroom and I'm sitting there in a pile of like, Everything I own just dumped on the floor, and I'm just like, all I, all I can hear is my, my cat, Bruce, like under the dresser, moaning. And I'm like, in that moment, I was like, if I could crawl underneath there with him and get out of this apartment and this like impending confrontation about these stupid gummies, like I would have. So these two officers introduce themselves. One is from 
the U.S. Postal Service, and this other one, Deputy Nick, is from the Hennepin County Violent Offenders Task Force. <laughs> so, yeah. So I, I cooperate. Like, they found the stupid gummies, and I waive my rights to an attorney, whatever, for now, and they turn on this tape recorder, and they just start asking me a ton of questions. It felt like the same questions in five different ways. They're like, do I live here alone? Yes. Who else has access to the apartment? No one. Do I have a boyfriend? Like, who else has keys? I'm like, no one. Like, I'm not dating anyone. Like, if someone has keys, it's a check on the cats. Like, who pays your bills? And I'm like, at this point, like, I'm still confused. Adding to that, I'm like, these are getting sort of offensive. Like, I pay my own bills. I'm an independent woman, like, feminism, like, right? right? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) So it just goes on. Like, and then it reaches this weird line. They're like, are you expecting any packages? And I'm like, I'm expecting two bags of cat food from (laughs) Chewy.com. So... I'm frustrated, they're frustrated, it's clearly not going where they like expected it to go. And I look at them and I'm like, you know, like I'm pretty confused. Like if you could enlighten me while you're here, that would be great. And this deputy, he like pulls out his phone reluctantly and he like pulls something up and he shows it to me, puts it in front of my face, and I'm like looking at it, and it's sort of blurry, and it's just it's a photo of a package, like a regular package. And I'm like, okay, and I look a little more and it says it's addressed to Lai Lu Yang from a Timmy Yang in California. And I'm like, okay, some package mishap. And in fairness, I get like packages every other day. I mean, come on, Amazon Prime, like retail stat. I don't know. So this, I don't think it's a big deal. Like some address mishap. And this deputy, he like exhales and he's like, well, within this package was a kilo of cocaine. And none of this computes. And I'm just like, I've never seen Coke in my life, and I cannot imagine how much that would be. <laughs> but, like, if you do the math, this isn't just like a dusting on the nose. This is like breaking bad territory. <laughs> so I, I explained to them my name is spelled L I L A, not L I L U. And I don't know anyone in California, and I don't know anyone named. Timmy, mind you, this whole time, they have not asked for any identification from me. And I have to go on to Ginger explain, like, this is like most older apartment buildings. Like, the mail person comes in, and they put the mail in the slots, and they put the packages right there in the front on the landing, so anyone who lives here has access to it. And I work 8 to 5, and I know packages come at 2, so logically, I think it's someone else in my building, but like my voice is strained by this time and from lack of water and I'm just like physically drained from trying to convince them like I'm not someone's drug mule. And it's like, it's not over yet. You know, they come back and they're like, well, what does it mean when you have written in your planner a bunch of times, clean phone? And I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) yeah. So I have this written down, it's just, and I have to explain, like it's shorthand for like, I need to clean my phone because I've taken a lot of cat photos and I gotta back them up, delete them so I can make room to take more cat photos. It was pretty difficult to admit this. On record, I'm like trying to keep a straight face, like this is my confession, I'm a true cat lady. 
these officers take this information, they like huddle together, and I'm just like, I don't know what's going to happen next. And they come back and they're like, well, seems like your story checks out and like you seem like an upstanding citizen and they start to remove my cuffs and I'm like, wait a second, like there's a drug dealer in my building and they're, they don't give me much answers and like they just start immediately to clear out and like pack up their stuff and that's it, no explanation beyond that and of course like as we're leaving, we're, you know, we're standing in the living room, the last person there is this Punisher looking cop and he like does this look around like, He's pretty satisfied with what has happened. And like, then he finally looks at me and he says, well, I don't think you're gonna make that meeting at 2 p.m. as he proceeds to slam the door shut in my face. So I'm left dumbfounded there. Like my place is trashed and I'm positive that there is a drug dealer in my building. So now it's been a few months since that eventful day. It was super traumatizing and I had some major cleanups to do. I even had to replace some broken furniture and I have definitely been eyeing my neighbors suspiciously since. I think the worst part about not only knowing that I live a few feet away from a drug dealer is that this individual had targeted me and creepishly studied my routine. Because of that, it's taken a while to, for me to feel at home again in my apartment and definitely even longer for the cats. Though I will say, I have noticed that Mercedes and Bruce have seemed much more back to normal after the apartment directly across the hall became vacant. Count three, see the woman at 11. kid growing up in small town Ohio, I had a really nice life. Um, I tangled with my parents a lot, but they were fundamentally good people. I had the sweetest friends, and best of all, at the end of what had just been a horrendous freshman year of high school, I had the promise of salvation. Seven perfect days building houses in rural Pennsylvania with my anti-Jesus hippie youth group. (laughs) I know. I had a lot going for me, um, but somehow it was not enough because behind the scenes that spring, everything was completely falling apart. I stopped sleeping and I filled that time by staying up late into the night and running razor blades across any part of my body that I thought I could hide. And it was just to muffle this big and horrible darkness that was growing inside me and I had no idea why. I thought I was maybe just a totally dysfunctional human being 
Or worse, that I was just totally ungrateful for the relative okayness that was my life. I had no way of understanding that I was just so sick in my mind and in my molecules. By the end of that spring, that perfect dangling carrot of seven days in rural Pennsylvania with the hippies was no longer enough. So I summoned the few scraps of energy I had left, and I cleaned my room from top to bottom so my parents wouldn't have to do it after I was dead. I dug my suicide note out of my English binder. It had been waiting there for weeks by then. And it's funny because I think there's this cultural understanding that suicide notes are going to be profound, but you have to understand, I was 15, so it was literally just a string of misquoted death cab for cutie lyrics. (laughs) But it was still a very sincere and serious suicide note, and I set it on my bedside table, and I crawled under those freshly smoothed covers, and I didn't leave the lights on, and I didn't leave my music on, and I was totally alone as I took pill after pill after pill until the little orange antidepressant bottle was totally empty. And I hadn't been sleeping much at all that spring, but that night I fell into the best sleep I could remember in my life because I was so relieved that I was never going to have to wake up again. Spoiler alert, I lived. (laughs) And shit, when I woke up, I was late for my Algebra 2 final, and I was still alive, and so were all of these feelings that I just wanted to extinguish. But I was also very high off antidepressants. (laughs) So I calmly walked to school, took the math final, I got a B plus by the way, Um, (laughs) and then I walked into my guidance counselor's office and reported my own suicide attempt, and I apologized for bothering her, and also told her that it was totally okay if she had to call someone about it. She called several people, (laughs) most especially my parents, and we ended up at the ER where I got to watch all of this just crushing despair and fear that I'd felt for the past few months reflected in their faces, only it was just in a matter of hours. And it was so disappointing because I just wanted to stop being a person with feelings, and instead I felt every single thing. And most especially what I felt was utter dread, because it was decided that I was going to go to an adolescent inpatient psychiatric facility. And this place had the psych wardiest name in the book. Rolling Oaks Mental Health Facility. (laughs) Now, my primary concern about Rolling Oaks was that it had a tree in the name, and I was inherently suspicious of any medical facility with a tree in the name, because I associated tree names with golf courses and retirement homes, and as an aspiring teenage bohemian, those were my two greatest fears in life. (laughs) But when you're 15 and you try to die, you don't get a say for some reason. So, I know. So, three hours later, I found myself sandwiched between my parents in the Rolling Oaks lobby. Now... This was a room that was just specifically designed to calm down crazy people, and there's no more politically correct way that I can put that. Um, It was all soft lighting and soft color schemes, 
and soft voices, but as soon as my parents signed the last of the paperwork and the people in scrubs ushered me away from them through these big double doors that you could tell only opened one way ever, everything stopped being soft. They sat me at this cold, hard desk, and somehow it wobbled, even though it was totally bolted to the ground. And when I started to try to get my bearings, I realized that everything I had touched was just gray and dingy and worn, because every other fucked up kid had been touching it too, just trying to catch their balance. And I could truly barely breathe by the time I got called in for physical intake. And the woman in charge of that did absolutely nothing to soothe my nerves. She barked her orders at me like she was a drill sergeant. She told me to lift my breasts, to squat and cough, to cough harder than that. And then, you're shaking. You're gonna need to stop it with the shaking. She didn't even make eye contact when she handed me a plain sheet and pointed to a waterproof mat in the corner of the observation room. That's where they keep you on the first night to make sure you don't strangle yourself with the sheet and then all the nights after if you try to strangle yourself with the sheet. And even though I was you know, lulled to sleep by the sound of my own physical shaking and the sound of 10 other mouth-breathing mentally ill children around me, it was the loneliest I'd ever been, lonelier than the night before with all those pills. But nonetheless, I fell asleep, and at 3 a.m., they woke me up because somebody in one of the regular rooms was wilding out, and I guess they needed to switch us. So my sheet and I were trundled down a dark hallway and left completely alone in what looked like an unfurnished dorm room to get to know the new roommate. Now, the second I got a decent look at this girl by the hallway light, I just knew what she was like in the real world. She was one of those girls who wore Cookie Monster pajama pants in public and spent every single gym class ever eating hot Cheetos and talking about how much she hated and or loved her boyfriend. <laughs> but, <laughs> but she was wide awake and so excited to be making a new friend at three in the morning. She extends her hand and she goes, hi. I'm Brandy. I'm here because I stabbed someone. <laughs> Great. So I don't know how I fell asleep for a second time that night in the bed beside Brandy, who was there because she stabbed someone. But I did, I think because the alternative was staying awake and having a conversation with Brandy, who was there because she stabbed someone. <laughs> and a couple hours later, I woke up really suddenly because I was laying in a pool of my own blood. You guys, it's okay, it was my period, not Brandy, who you are correct, was there because she fucking stabbed someone. Anyway, you know, despite my delight at not having a stab wound, I was really uncomfortable and humiliated, so I went to the doorway because I figured one of the scrub people would see my plate and maybe give me like a washcloth or a tampon or something, but Instead, this piercing alarm went off the moment I hit the doorway and they just appeared out of nowhere to nurse ratchet me back into my bedroom. And it was funny in retrospect, but I was so scared at the time and I thought, surely this was just going to be an anomaly. This wouldn't be like every day at Rolling Oaks. It was a really good introduction. Uh, that place included very little therapeutic activity. We mostly made lanyards and watched Adam Sandler movies. And I think those are a dubious choice for any scenario, but most especially the therapeutic one. 
Um, and when we weren't doing that, we were standing in line. There was the food line, and there was the pill line, and there was the water fountain line, which was actually kind of exciting because we only got recreational water fountain visits twice a day. And there was also the tampon line where anybody on their period lined up in front of a rec room full of every other patient to get the necessary supplies for the day. And so after 24 hours there, I knew that if I was going to hold on to any dignity or any sanity, I needed to get out and I needed to be with my people. And there was one surefire way to make this happen. My appointment with the staff psychiatrist. So when I went in to see that man, I swallowed my pride and I got ready to plead. I told him about my friends and my youth group and this trip and how I thought maybe that was what was going to help me. And he didn't even look at me as he gave his response. He just tapped his stupid expensive pen against his stupid clipboard and says, you should have thought of that before you tried to kill yourself. And that's when I realized I wasn't a person to this man. I was just a wristband with a code on it or a 20 minute problem between him and another cup of coffee. And that afternoon, my new roommate, Brandy, who was there because she stabbed someone, had been discharged to stab again in the wild, I guess. But <laughs> my, my new roommate processed her frustration about being there by punching a wall. And when her hand turned purple and started to swell up, we went to go find a nurse. And the nurse just handed her an ice pack that wasn't even a real ice pack. It was just a frozen paper towel and commented to nobody in particular, well, that'll teach her not to punch walls. That's not how you talk about people. But it occurred to me, we weren't people to that nurse either. And finally, that evening, I was laying in bed trying desperately to fall asleep, still shaking, and I hear two nurses out in the hallway, and they're talking about this little eight-year-old girl who I'd spotted across the cafeteria at dinner that night. And one of them says, Charity's at it again, saying she wants to die. And there was so much disdain in her voice that I thought surely her colleague was going to tell her off for being so heartless when she talked about a sick little kid. But her coworker had the exact same tone when she started complaining about all the incident report paperwork this was going to entail. We weren't people to any of them. We weren't even people to ourselves. And that was exactly what I'd wanted when I'd taken all those pills, but I got my wish and it felt horrible. When I woke up the next morning, my new roommate was staring at me like I was a car crash. And she suggested I go look in the mirror. So I stumbled into our tiny little bathroom and I looked into the mirror that was actually just a sheet of stainless steel screwed into the wall because glass wasn't allowed at Rolling Oaks. And I was covered from head to toe in fist-sized, angry red hives and they were oozing and my tongue was lolling out of my mouth three times its normal size. And as I took all of that in, it hit me that my skin felt three sizes too tight and everything was on fire. And that's when my throat started tightening up. And I realized that I had like 45 seconds before I was going to be unconscious, maybe for a very, very long time. So I hurled myself past that awful piercing door alarm into the hallway. And the people in scrubs were back, but this time they were holding me up as I collapsed. And I heard them talking about how this must be an allergic reaction to all of the pills that had landed me there in the first place. But I knew they were wrong. 
I'd stopped being a person to everyone and my body had finally caught up with me. I was just some kind of sick monster. I was in so much despair that I didn't even object when they started injecting steroids into my bare butt cheeks. And it's funny because the nurse who was, I think, in charge of making sure I didn't choke on my own tongue that morning um, was the first adult to be nice to me the whole experience. And she talked to me using my name, and she got me this big cup of water, even though it wasn't sanctioned water fountain time. And I tried to say thank you to her around this lump that was my tongue, but I remember thinking that it was such a stupid waste of time, because didn't she know that I wasn't a person? Not being a person sucked even more than being a person had, and I needed to put a stop to the whole business, so I came up with a plan. I started participating in group therapy and telling my parents about all the wonderful coping skills that I was learning. And I was so patient and so sweet as I waited in line after line after line, all the while keeping my mind busy by visualizing the exact way I would drown myself in the pond near my house the moment I was discharged. And my plan worked like a charm. My discharge date was set just a few days away, and I was so ready to die. But the day before I was going to be discharged and finally get my big second chance to end it, I got a letter. And it was from my youth group leaders, the people who once held my salvation in their hands. And it said that if my parents were okay with it, I could still come and join them in Pennsylvania because they loved me and I was still one of them. And this tiny little shred of humanity returned to me when I read that letter. And I carried it and it survived for the whole next day. And when my parents came to pick me up from that awful hospital, there was a suitcase and a toolkit in the back seat of our minivan. And it was like they knew that this was the best chance at saving me. We drove straight to Pennsylvania. And when we got there, I thought for sure that my friends were going to notice that I was shaking. I hadn't stopped shaking the whole time I was in the hospital. And I'd shaken the whole car ride. But my friend, um, one of the most perceptive people I know to this day, came up to me right away. And she did notice, but she just wrapped her arms around me. She says... Hey, I'm going to hug you until the shaking stops, okay? And the whole five days for me was like that. They were so gentle and loving with me until they didn't need to be. And that was just as helpful. They treated me like a person. And I began to gain back every little piece of humanity that that sickness and that awful hospital had stolen from me. Those five days did not fix everything, but I've never felt like less than a person ever again. Even on the days when I'm not myself, I still feel like somebody. While I was working on this story, I went back to the little town in Ohio where everything started, and I was terrified because I thought I was going to see that sick, sad little girl everywhere I went. And to be honest, my fears were kind of realized because she was there. She was sitting on rusty park benches, and she was under all of the old high school notebooks I have stashed under my bed in my parents' house. And most of all, she was in the relieved eyes of every single person who's known both of us. But it was okay, because she didn't look like a monster, 
and she didn't look like a ghost. She just looked like a person. Thank you. This is Portugal, the man behind me now. And we just heard from Lydia Reese. If self-harm seems like a potential issue for yourself or anyone else in your life, remember that the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is at 800-273-TALK. Before Lydia, we heard a little interstitial from our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And now I want to ask, do you find yourself distracted, forgetting things, making mistakes at work? A quality night's sleep makes all the difference. And the right mattress is the difference between resting and just laying down. The Lisa mattress, that's L-E-E-S-A, is a product of more than 30 years of experience in mattress engineering and hundreds of hours of testing, comprised of three foam layers that provide cooling pressure relief, body contouring, and support. Over 300,000 happy Lisa sleepers agreed that the Lisa mattress gives them the rest they need. Order your Lisa mattress online at lisa.com slash risk with the promo code risk and try it risk-free for 100 nights. The Lisa mattress ships direct to your door in a convenient box with free shipping and free returns. Find the right mattress for you at lisa.com slash risk and get the rest you need tonight. I have one of these Lisa mattresses and it's just the right amount of firmness and softness. I don't know how else to describe it, but it's been absolutely phenomenal for me. Best mattress I have ever had. And you can get up to $160 off the Lisa mattress or $235 off the luxury Sapira mattress and free shipping on the Lisa mattress at L-E-E-S-A dot com slash risk. Enter the promo code risk at the checkout. That's Lisa.com slash risk. Promo code risk. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from one of our favorite storytellers, Jamie Brickhouse. Jamie happened to be in Minneapolis the weekend we were there. He was doing a show at the Fringe Festival, so he was able to stop by our show and tell this story. You can always find Jamie at jamiebrickhouse.com. Here he is now with a story we call Lost in Acapulco. 
Somewhere in Kansas, there's a photo of me, but I've never seen it. And even though I've never seen that snapshot, every detail of that picture is just as vivid to me as every other detail of the day it was taken. I'm 15 years old, and I'm standing in the surf of an Acapulco beach, flashing a smile of braces that sparkle in the brazen Mexican sun, like sequins on a Bob Mackie gown. And besides that smile, all I'm wearing is a pair of super short, <laughs> cornflower blue, nylon, OP, Ocean Pacific, swim trunks with a Velcro fly. <laughs> the ocean is behind me, and I'm facing the Acapulco Princess Resort. But I'm not looking at the princess. My hands are on my hips, and I'm inviting the photographers to stare back at me hard. So it was 1983, and I was on a family vacation with my mother and my father and my older brother, Jeffrey. Now, my whole life, my whole childhood up to that point, growing up in a small town in Texas about 80 miles from Houston, Acapulco had been loaded with a promise of glamour and sex. I knew that Jackie O had her first honeymoon in Acapulco. Come to think of it, my mother had her first honeymoon in Acapulco. And if I believe what she said about good girls not putting out before the gold wedding band, then I suppose she became a woman in Acapulco. Oh. Acapulco. And the Acapulco Princess Resort, it was three airsots Aztec temples of luxury situated on a secluded beach with five different swimming pools that dripped with sex. As soon as we checked into the hotel, I set off to explore the property wearing nothing but those OP swim trunks. I bypassed the kiddie pool with its rowdy shouts of Marco Polo, ugh. And I headed straight for the adult pool, which was actually a giant aquatic lounge that ended or began with a swim-up bar under a thatched roof. Every submerged stool was occupied by heterosexual men and women sporting a rainbow of tropical-colored drinks Lime margaritas, yellow pina coladas, pink strawberry daiquiris, blue Hawaiians. There was a woman in a macrame bikini making out with a man wearing a gold chain. They both had savage tans. It was like a live episode of The Love Boat. And then, like a cat whose eyes go from lazy indifference to wide-eyed alert as it spots the only two birds in a forest of trees. My eyes zoomed in on the only two men in Speedos. <laughs> they were frolicking in the shallow end of the pool. The one in the lime green bikini was tall and lanky like me with curly brown hair and a light spray of freckles. He was coquettishly posing for the one with the camera who was in a navy blue bikini with racing stripes up the side. 
He was a towhead, stocky, solid, almost short, with Windex blue eyes. Limey posed for racing stripes. And just before racing stripes, or rather just after racing stripes, yelled, cheese! Limey pulled down one side of his bikini to reveal his left butt cheek and looked over his shoulder at me and winked. <laughs> but I was sitting on the edge of the pool, pumping, pumping, pumping my legs like Lolita. <laughs> I threw Limey a glance. He shot it to Racing Stripes, who threw it back to me. <laughs> Tennis, anyone? Soon, water from their near-naked bodies was dripping down on me. Racing Stripes, the older one, took the lead. Hey, uh, I'm Vernon. This is Kelly. Oh, hi. Nice to meet y'all. I'm Jamie. Y'all, are you from Texas? Yeah, Houston. Oh, nice city, Houston. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I was hoping you didn't ask too many questions. <laughs> We're from Kansas City here for a sales conference for the company I work for. Oh, I'm here on vacation. I omitted with my family. <laughs> then Limey jumped in. Hey, wanna take a walk on the beach? Sure, why not? When we got to the ocean, Racing Stripe said, why don't you go stand in the water and we'll take your picture? Okay, why not? Like I do this all the time. When I got to the water, I turned my back on the waves. Racing stripes called, say cheese! And it was there that I struck my pose and flashed my thousand watt smile of sparkling braces in the broiling Mexican sun. <laughs> hey, say cheese! Limey called. I placed my hands on my hips and I stared back at them hard. Cheese! Jamie! My father. <laughs> my smile melted as I robotically walked towards my father as my new friends from Kansas slowly drifted away. I didn't know the term in those days, but I had just been cock-blocked by my father. <laughs> he looked at me. Who were those men? Oh, um, they were just some guys I met on the beach. They asked if they could take my picture. Mm-hmm. Well, you need to be more careful. Now, come on. We need to get back. I followed him, and we walked along the beach for the next 30 minutes in total silence. I didn't know what to say. I guess he didn't either. Now... I will have you know that I was a average, red-blooded, American teenage male who happened to be gay, and I was ready to get laid. I mean, I had never fooled around with other boys, or other girls for that matter. I hadn't seen any porn, gay or straight, because it was hard to access in those days at that age. Uh, but I had read copies of my father's penthouse forum, which was filled with stories, and some of them were gay and bi. So I knew what to do. I knew what went on out there. <laughs> and like a teenage male who's just been given an opportunity and had it taken away, I thought, that's my last chance to ever get laid. <laughs> but luckily, 
that day, around dusk, as I was getting um, sunset margaritas uh, with my brother, Jeffrey, for my parents and for us, because I was allowed to have one or two drinks while on vacation. So we're at the bar, and Jeffrey's on one side of me, and then I see this freckled arm on the other side of me, and I turn, and it's Limey. And he starts to speak, and I'm like, mm, and I do a head nod towards my brother so he doesn't blow it. And then he scribbles something on a piece of paper on a, on a receipt, and he pushes it over. And I look down, and I see that he's written a room number on there. And I notice that the room happens to be directly below the room I'm sharing with my brother Jeffrey. I think this is a very good omen. So Jeffrey and I get the drinks and we take them back to our parents by the pool and I tell them I've got to go to the bathroom and so I run up to the room and I call their room. And Racing Stripes answers. And I say, hey, it's uh, Jamie from Houston. Um, uh, hi. And he says, oh, hey, how you doing? So he tells me that they have a uh, company sales conference dinner to go to that night and then they're going to the bars downtown. I tingled when he said the bars. And then he says, Hey, uh, we should be back in our room around midnight. Why don't you stop by? Okay, I'll be there. Wondering if I could actually make it happen. I could barely eat dinner that night. I was so nervous. I had not been this excited since the night before my first drama tournament in junior high. <laughs> but just before midnight that night, as my brother Jeffrey and I were each tucked into each of our beds in the pitch black room, I waited 10 minutes, 15, and then Jeffrey, Jeffrey, are you asleep? Nothing but the steady metronome of his breathing. So I changed into my getaway outfit, cropped t-shirt, short shorts. <laughs> I stepped into my topsiders and tiptoed across the pitch black room as silently as a ballet dancer on point. Outside in the hallway, I was so giddy, I actually skipped down the stairs to their room below. Limey greeted me, wearing nothing but a towel. Hey, you made it. Come on in. I followed him inside, where Racing Stripe sat on one of the two beds, wearing nothing but a pair of white briefs. Calvin Klein. That was a big deal in 1983. <laughs> I sat on the bed opposite. Limey sat next to me, our knees touching. And then Racing Stripe started talking. Oh, their uh, sales conference dinner was lovely. Uh, the bars were fun that night. Um, they have to get up early in the morning to catch their flight back to Kansas City. They've been together three years. Three years! That seems so long. He's 32. Limey's 23. I'm 18. I lied. Then Limey turned to me, our noses almost touching. So, how do you like Acapulco? I like it very much. I felt like I was talking in slow motion. And then Limey gave me my first kiss. He tasted a bourbon. I already had a taste for bourbon. Out of the fog of that kiss, racing stripes emerged 
and we tumbled into a blur of mouths and tongues and lips and stiff dicks and oohs and ahs, and I was in the middle, and I loved every second of it. Yes. My first time, and I was spoiled. Would I ever be satisfied with just one? I don't remember getting dressed, but I remember the sex. It was wonderful. And it was like a Harlequin romance. Everything but penetration. But I do remember bidding them farewell. Their heads peering from beyond the door, limeys on top of racing stripes. Outside in the hallway, I was so giddy, I almost floated up those stairs to my room. Then I arched my shoulders in delight and shoved my hands in my pockets. I'm a woman now. (laughs) Then I felt something that wasn't there before. I pulled out a wad of peso notes, worth about 50 US dollars. (laughs) They think I'm a whore. And a cheap whore. I am no whore. I marched back to their room and I slid the money under the door. But back in my room, back in the bed, I couldn't go to sleep. I tossed and turned as I replayed every second of the video of that day. Finally, about 6 a.m., I snuck back to their room for another round to get the money back. (laughs) The door was ajar. I could see inside that the closet was bare, the soiled bed unmade. They were gone. And so was the money. Now, I have to tell you, to this day, to this second, I remain grateful to them for my first consensual time. I mean, I was ready and they were willing. And I hope they look back at it as fondly as I do. I mean, I've never seen them again. Did they believe I was 18? I don't know. I didn't look 18. Did they believe I was a whore? I don't know. I don't think I was a whore. I tried later and it didn't work out. But I always like to imagine them back in Kansas telling their friends about the time they picked up a copper-headed Lolita by the pool in Acapulco, nearly lost on the beach, but who wouldn't be bought, or at least wouldn't take a tip. (laughs) And every time they tell that story, they point to a baby grand piano, lousy with a collection of silver-framed photos. And in the center is a picture of a metal-mouthed kid brazenly smiling in the Mexican sun forever 15 forever a virgin thank you love 
exciting and new. Come aboard, we're expecting you and love. Life's sweetest reward. Let it flow. It floats back to you. Soon we'll be making another run. The love boat promises something for everyone. Set a course for adventure. Your mind on a new romance. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Jack Jones with the uh, theme from The Love Boat. I used to watch The Love Boat every Saturday night with my little sister, you know, when I was about nine years old. At the first commercial break, we would place bets on how the stories were going to end at the end of the hour. We just heard from Jamie Brickhouse, who you can find at jamiebrickhouse.com. And now I'm going to let you know where Risk is coming next. On September 15th, we are back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater on September 15th. On September 20th, we are in New York City at NYU Bookstore. That's a book signing and book reading on September 20 at NYU Bookstore. On October 4th, we're in Denver. We are still taking pitches for that Denver show on October 4th at the Bluebird Theater. On October 20th, we're back in LA at the Bootleg Theater again. On October 25th, we are back at Caveat in New York City. Those late October shows in Los Angeles and in New York will be our scary story-themed shows. And then in November, we're not exactly sure of the date yet, but in November, possibly November 14th, we're going to be doing another show in conjunction with body storytelling. Uh, hosted by Dixie De La Tour out of San Francisco. We're going to be doing something together again at the Bell House in Brooklyn in November. So stay tuned for more information about that. Don't forget that we teach storytelling at thestorystudio.org. That is one-on-one training over Skype or in-person workshops in New York, Los Angeles, and Minneapolis, or our video courses that you can download and take in your own time, or our corporate workshops. We've taught storytelling skills to places like Google and Pfizer and Citibank. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Halloween is coming up, so you should pitch us a scary story. The winter holidays are coming up, so you should pitch us a winter holiday story. Just go to riskdeshow.com slash submissions and pitch us a scary story or a winter holiday story.
get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness! Here's the high-stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC.